0: Welcome to the Gate 15 interview and a discussion I'm really excited to have with Errol Weiss, the Chief Security Officer for the Health Information Sharing and Analysis Center or Health ISAC. I'm Andy, Gate 15's Managing Director. And Errol, thanks for uh, joining us and thanks to anybody listening for taking the time to listen to what I think is a really great discussion for us to have today, at a time when health from the pandemic to cyber attacks is really very much in the spotlight. So Errol, again, thanks for joining me. How's it going today?
1: Andy, yeah, it's great to be here. I'm so uh, thrilled to be working with you here on this.
0: Looking forward to
1: our time today.
0: Yeah, for sure. Thanks for making time to do it. I think you've got a really awesome vantage point, you know, to discuss these issues and just everything you've seen over the years and where we are right now. So really excited to get into it. But first, let me give a quick intro into your rather remarkable background. Errol's (laughs) bio we posted to the website and an accompanying blog post here. But let me say some of the highlights, which, as I mentioned to Errol separately, pretty ridiculous to be honest. So, Errol most recently joined Health ISAC in April, 2019 to serve as its first chief security officer. And I'll leave it to Errol to explain a little bit more about HISAC here in a minute. But in, in brief background, Errol's got over 25 years of experience in information security, starting with the NSA, and then about 10 years delivering information security services for Fortune 100 companies. Errol, you're one of four named inventors on the patent for trusted and anonymous information sharing. And we're involved in the creation implementation and operation of the world's first ISAC, and for, for, for Errol and I, we've, we've been living around ISACs a lot these last many years, and so that last note is a pretty cool one to have on the resume, right, being involved in the, the world's first ISAC, so Errol's got a great education, a, a, an MS degree in technical management from Johns Hopkins, and a BS in computer engineering from Bucknell University, which is referenced one of my favorite movies, to be honest, if you've ever seen The House. But uh, we're just going to jump right into it. And Errol, that's a very brief background, but you've done a whole lot more than that from the financial services community to uh, what you're doing today with Health ISAC. And for those that maybe don't know, if you could maybe take a minute about what you've been up to, what Health ISAC is, and, and what you're doing today.
1: Yeah, sure. So um, yeah, let's talk a little bit about Health ISAC. Um, like as, as you mentioned, I've been here a little bit over a year, and um, Came here after 13 years working directly in the financial services sector. So after being a, an ISAC customer, an ISAC member for all those years, it's, it's, uh, it's definitely different being on the service provider side, say, um, at this point. But it gives me a, a healthy appreciation for what I say is in the realm of possible. So after working with FSISAC and the financial services ISAC, and, and being on the receiving end of those FSISAC alerts for all of that time, as I was running threat intelligence functions for Bank of America and Citibank, um, I know what's, what's possible. I know what an ISAC should or could or ought to be doing and, and had a good feeling for other things that the ISAC ought to be doing. And so I'm bringing a lot of those lessons learned to the Health ISAC, and uh, we've, we've been working on several of those things over the past year. And we've got a few more things up our sleeves as well. So just knowing what the, what's, what's within the realm of possible for what an, what an ISAC ought to be doing. So as I said, I've been working on these things for the past year and we've got a lot of accomplishments done and a few more to go yet.
0: You've so. been doing so much. I mean, I, I, I get a chance to look into your world a little bit. And I think one of the you know, the great things from coming from where you, where you did as a user and a member draw your analogy you have so much appreciation for, like you said, what an ISAC can do, or other the great things you would have loved to have seen that maybe you didn't get to experience as a user and member and now you get to deliver that for such an incredible community at Health ISAC. That, that's gotta be a really cool experience for you.
1: Yeah, it's been, it's been really neat. And so like when I got here, there were a lot of great things already happening and I was really pleased to see the amount of info sharing that was going on within the health sector. I uh, wasn't sure exactly what I was going to walk into, but I was really impressed with the, the level of sharing that was happening, the energy amongst the Help ISAC members, the threat intelligence committee that was in place at the time that was working closely together, and and, and off to a really good start. So, so I had a great foundation to start working with. And for me, it was really kind of, um, let's say, simplifying some of the intelligence products that were out there, standardizing those templates a bit so that, so that maybe people who are not used to seeing intelligence reporting would, un, would have a little bit easier time of uh, understanding what to expect when they see these intelligence reports, how they were laid out. I wanted to make sure that we added things like context in the health sector. So why were these alerts and advisories important to IT and security professionals in the healthcare sector? So we started addressing things like that. And then also starting to cater to some, let's say even a non technical audience. So putting together things like a daily cyber headline report summarized in the last 24 hours of significant events in the cyberspace and why, again, why was it important to healthcare professionals in the IT space? So really working on things like that. And then finally, really uh, addressing recently here, addressing the delivery of threat intelligence as well. So trying to to take advantage of technology, get that intelligence out of the mailbox, essentially, and rely on technology that users can uh, customize what's important to them, uh, establish what kinds of alerts they get, what technology uh, they want to see alerts about. For example, do they want the Microsoft alerts and maybe not the Cisco alerts, for example, and be able to come up with customized settings like that so they get exactly what they need and when they need it. And, and help deliver that to the platform, and then especially in the days when we were mobile, uh, as I'm looking at my smartphone here, um, being able to deliver intelligence to smartphones and tablets that were, um, that, 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 that present themselves well in those formats and not necessarily just by email. So we'll get back to that eventually one of these days, I'm sure,
0: <laughs> but,
1: uh, but, but we're taking advantage of technology like that as well, so we're in the midst of that.
0: It's exciting to see all of that, but I think you get a point early on that's really important. I think, you know, when I was in the military, the, the question community used to always ask is, what's the so what, right? Why, why are you briefing me and telling me what you're telling me? And I think, you know, as I, as we're recording this today, I think I've got about 50 notifications in my inbox of patches and updates, and I've got to sit through and figure out what matters, what do I care about, because we don't all care about everything and all the same things. I think you've really done a lot to sort of contextualize that, right, to take information and updates and concerns And make it actionable by saying hey here's why this matters to you healthcare professional here's why you should do x y or z and that's a huge step
1: it is and it's it's hard i mean usually as an analyst i know we kind of stare at those vulnerability alerts those advisories and trying to think well it's obvious so what it's obvious why it's important um and, and but it's not, and so you re, you need to take those couple of minutes to think about you know what are you trying to tell that i t professional or the information security professional what should they be doing about it and why
0: and yeah. sometimes it feels a little
1: redundant but uh, but it's okay
0: yeah, that's right I think you know, we tend to take things for granted that people should or would know what we're, what we're trying to say, and I just think that that's not that's not the right way to do it and so I think it's a, it's a great step I'm looking at my clock. I'm, I'm gonna. I know I'm gonna blow the, the timeline <laughs> by, by a ton. But th- th- this is great. So we're we talking about a lot of things you're doing. I know you're seeing and experiencing a lot of things, right? In this in this crazy environment where we're in with coronavirus and the, the the insane amount of attacks are going on across all you know uh, sectors and communities. But you know, so let's start out with, with a place very near and dear to, to health, ISAC, in your heart, which is which are those cyber threats, right? And what you're seeing there. So what from from your vantage point, what are the types of threats that you're seeing today and what risks do those pose both for the healthcare community as we've been talking about, but also more broadly, like what could those risks and vulnerabilities mean to the general public?
1: Yeah, that's, that's, that's a big part of what we do every day. And, and um, let's, so let's, you know, really start with a focus on cyber, if I can really start there. And, and one of the things that, um, that I also helped set up since I've been with the Health ISAC is to establish our threat level. So it really is a model that, that I saw worked really well at the Financial Services ISAC. It's based on uh, the model that DHS put together a long time ago on establishing that threat level. And so we meet once a month amongst the Threat Intelligence Committee to discuss where we are at the threat level, talk about what attacks we're seeing, what types of incidents are happening, Are things trending up or down? What's going on? And and try to have that discussion around where we feel the threat level is. It's a very subjective conversation. Um, I think it's very difficult to put quantitative measures around something like this. I know people have tried, but I think that uh, it's a lot of effort for little return, and you're better off just having a consensus-driven discussion around something like that. And so we'll meet once a month and then obviously we'll do it uh, ad hoc if we have to, depending on what events are happening. But for me, the important part is it gives me a, a chance now that I'm on the service provider side to sit in the shoes of the IT and the information security professionals at these organizations and really understand what they're seeing and what they're experiencing and the challenges and problems that they're dealing with on a day in day out basis. And so literally, and again, this is obviously very time driven. So, uh, based on the things that we're dealing with right now, as of the last couple of weeks, we've been dealing with, it feels like almost that, uh, being inundated with, with critical vulnerabilities on network infrastructure that's also remotely exploitable. So things like F5, Palo Alto, um, Citrix, and then another one of the most recent ones uh, was an SAP application service, Um, that uh, is also remotely exploitable. And so all of these things have come out here recently that are really driving that conversation and and requiring the analysts to to work through what the issues are, is there proof of concept exploit code available, driving internal discussions at their organizations on what the patch prioritizations ought to be. And again, with, with most of these, because they are remotely exploitable, it drives them to require critical patch notification internally and within their own organizations. So again, this is kind of the daily thing that we're dealing with. But I'd also say, you know, the longer term issue that, that we're dealing with, certainly in the healthcare sector, is the repeated issue of ransomware attacks and malware that that we're experiencing. And, and of course, today in this pandemic response environment, any ransomware incidents or malware incidents that happen at these organizations, especially if they're doing any kind of COVID-19 research and development, vaccine development, um, treatment development in that space, it makes front page news, right? And, and um, while these attacks are happening everywhere, it makes it feel like it's only happening at this one institution, maybe being targeted. But in my estimation, I don't necessarily feel it's all being targeted and, uh, and they're all experiencing us. But at any rate, you know, these are the issues that we, can, that we still consistently worry about. And I think part of it is because of the environment that we have, the investment that we do have in information security at some of these organizations might not be where it should be. And we've got a little bit of ways to go in, in those organizations.
0: There's so much in that, Errol, you hit. I mean, yeah. I mean, we could, we could try to unpack a lot of that. But you took <sighs> on ransomware, which, uh, you know, our, our, in our Risk Roundtable podcast for this month, we spent some time discussing because, you know, a couple of years ago, it sort of surged and people were like, hey, ran- ransomware is, you know, going to die away. We're worried about you know, crypto mining and things of that nature. And we still are, but ransomware has certainly come back roaring extremely loudly. And I was just on a call earlier, we were talking about, you know, where ransomware is going. One of the things we talked about a lot at Gay 15 is the idea of blended threats. You know, these, the idea that something could manifest on one domain that has impacts on the other. So let's take, for example, you know, a ransomware incident or a cybersecurity incident that actually affects your network security and network operations. But beyond that could also have physical health or physical security implications. As you think about where we are, with some of these threats and where they're going, do you see concerns relating to blended threats and any of these crossover impacts from cyber to physical, or even vice versa with insider threats and natural disasters and what we've seen with this pandemic?
1: Yeah, I think the, the one thing that, that, um, that I would talk about here with the blended threat and the pandemic response, to me, the, probably the best example I can think of is where we had this in the early days of, the, of COVID-19 and the response, we had this huge and sudden remote workforce. And where organizations had maybe a few people that worked remote one day, they had to go to everyone working remotely the next day, literally overnight. And, and it's, um, you know, one of the lingering impacts that I see uh, will be going forward, even post-pandemic response, once this is all said and done, I think that we're going to have a much larger remote workforce than we ever have before. And so I think that in light of that, when we do roll ahead to that point, it will have some other resilience impacts. So so with a larger workforce working from home here, as you and I are speaking today, and subject to internet outages and all that kind of fun stuff, you know, how redundant are our home systems, right? Do, do I have backup power? Do I have backup comms? Um, you know, if, if my internet dropped out right now, I, I could get my hotspot out and be back up and running here, but it's going to be, there's going to be an impact. It's going to take me a few minutes to get back online here with you. Um, you know, I think we're also more vulnerable to common storm events. So, so while, you know, if I was in, a, in an office building that had battery backup or maybe a a generator that could flash up quickly um, at home. You know, if there was a, a a storm event that knocked out a power line here locally, you know, I'd be out for a while. Um, and I think I think with the remote workforce, we're going to see issues like that. You know, backup comms, uh, all of those kinds of things. Uh, for those larger regional issues, and I think back to my time when I was over at City when Superstorm Storm Sandy hit. Uh, that also. That also created a situation where we had a regional impact, large remote workforce suddenly in place there because they either couldn't get to work or the offices weren't open because of the impact from the storm. And, um, you know, I think we had much more downtime uh, than we could have experienced as restoration at the home is just taking much longer than it would have at the, the office. So again, I think that'll be one of those issues that I think we'll see with this larger remote workforce.
0: Yeah, there's some great thoughts there on sort of you know, personal and organizational resilience. I think back when a couple of years ago, I had a chance to do an exercise down North Carolina in, in higher education space, and they're dealing with flooding from a hurricane system and how they right. uncovered so many issues in resilience just based on the fact that you know, they'd set up certain ways and built in certain redundancies that you know, when you're sitting in the floodplain, a lot of that can go out the window and so you're finding you know, new ways to build in that redundancy and build that resiliency. You add in the work from home complexity, it really is a dynamic challenge we've got to look at from a lot of different angles now. So it's it's really interesting. There's a lot to look at there. I, I love the way you sort of started out with you know, the early days of, of coronavirus. You sound like old men already and it feels like a- I know, right? <laughs> so, you know, it, this thing seems like it started forever ago and it's, it's not going away. So it's, it's really interesting. But um, a lot more I'd like to get into there too, but I think pr- probably get to move into and one of the areas really near and dear to every ISAC's heart and to what you're doing every day, which is really looking at information sharing. Right, so you have got all these complex threats from the COVID-related stuff to uh, the blended threats we touched on to ransomware, a lot of things going in and, in and outside of cybersecurity. And effective information sharing is such an important part of countering those different threats. So when we're you know not recording podcasts and doing things like this, you know I live in that world. A lot. Can you discuss some of the benefits of information sharing, collaboration, and some of the challenges that you see to making it successful?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, Yeah, I I think uh, one of the things that uh, I can also make available uh, for you is this information sharing best practices paper that we put together, and and actually in there we talk about some of the benefits. So I can definitely make it available for you and have it on the website as well. That
0: would be awesome. Um,
1: But, yeah, even in the paper, we talk about four benefits uh, of information sharing. And, uh, you know, some of the obvious ones talk about, like, this improved security posture through shared situational awareness. So, again, it kind of goes back to the, I'll say, the original intent of the, of the ISAC, which was it's kind of like the, the virtual neighborhood watch program. So if I see something happening and I share it with my neighbors, uh, we can all benefit from that. We can all use that information to protect ourselves and hopefully not become a victim from that attack. And, and much like the, that Neighborhood Watch program, we've turned that into the cyber equivalent where we're sharing incidents, cyber incident information with each other and benefiting from that. And even using that information to potentially block attacks. Um, the other uh, benefit that we talk about is this crowdsourced cybersecurity expertise. So it's a great way to to pose a question out and get it out to the group of people in the community in the ISAC and share that information with each other or learn from each other. Uh, We see people that are sharing things like best practices. So they may have a question about like, how do you organize uh, an information security staff? uh, What tools are working well for them in their environment? uh, How are they dealing with some of the regulatory issues locally or nationally? And, and really learn and leverage from each other. And it's amazing um, what you can learn from, from one another. And, and I think that also it's, it helps the staff. So some of the more junior people have an opportunity to live and learn through all of that, through that exposure. Uh, the third benefit we talk about is this heightened community trust and resilience. So again, back to sharing what the, the common operating picture with each other, those risk management techniques with each other, Um, The rapid sharing of actionable intelligence, like we talked about earlier, again, will help secure and help protect everybody. And then finally, uh, improve cybersecurity innovation. So, you know, getting involved with some of the challenges that others are dealing with in your sector, helping to develop standards, practices, development of best practices that other people could benefit from. You know, and the other, you know, the final thing that I would say, too, about all this is that, um, you know, it's it. People grow by, by uh, expanding their horizons, getting into uncomfortable positions, let's say, and taking some risks. And I think that, that information sharing is one of those. And, and, uh, and, and people are often intimidated by all of the high technical conversations that may be happening in some of these forums and may be a little bit intimidated to get out there and share. But I, I would encourage you to do that. And, and um, you, know, you may be in a small organization and you may feel intimidated sharing with the giants of the world, let's say. But um, you know, I found like even when I was at Citibank and I was looking at information that was being shared by some small banks in upstate New York that I never heard of, um, they had an incredible amount of information. I was really impressed with their technical capabilities and what they had to offer. And I felt that I was learning from everybody who had something to share. So I encourage you to get out there, I feel a little uncomfortable, but I guarantee you're going to get 10 times out of it than what you put into it.
0: I love that encouragement and in, in, in the way you're sort of promoting, you know, that really everybody's an important player when we're sharing information. Like this. everybody's got a unique and important and valuable perspective in that. And you're taking it further beyond just sort of trying to live it at HISAC, you're really you know codifying it and some people can go back and refer to you because so many times it just, you know, inherently there's turnover, there's growth, there's people moving we lose many of those valuable lessons. We can bake it into the DNA of our organizations and our operations. So it's, it's really great to see that. I and mean, you look back, I mean, you're a real smart guy, Errol. I'm, I'm a rock, right? I mean, I, I grew up and my, you know, my, my, my my knuckles scraped the ground. I look back to you know, the first time I think as a nation that we you know, really understood the importance of this was, you know, we look back to 9-11, right? And just uh, the inability of connecting the dots at the right time, the right way back then. And for me, it became very real, you know, in my in my, uh, my deployment to Iraq in 2003, um, I was an operator, I wasn't an Intel guy, but I saw a disconnect as information came into our operations center talking about a very concerning threat, just didn't properly make its way from operators to analysts to leadership. And those those connections weren't made the right way. And I think a lot of organizations still suffer through that that disconnect, that, that inadequate information sharing, because they don't bake it in, they don't capture those key points you just made and shared. And they don't make it something that's really inherent to the organization, something that we all own, embrace and execute as part of what we do every day. So I think it's, it's really awesome. You gotta take it to that next level in the environment that you're in and sharing that broadly for others to learn from as well. So let's, uh, let's continue. So information sharing is huge and it's also really important cybersecurity, but these are sort of unique times. And I think as we look at coronavirus and the pandemic, that was obviously a huge physical healthcare issue. And so many has been concerned about a pandemic for a long time. Uh, that's not a political you know related comment not, not criticizing mm-hmm. anybody right it's just just reality a lot of us have to, you know, thought about this for, for a long time and now we're living through it what does this experience tell you as HISAC CSO has left any change in what HISAC does or how you support your members
1: yeah so one thing for sure Andy like when we do these tabletop exercises I don't think anybody's going to say oh that will never happen right I mean if we wow. talked about it, a pandemic like this, you know, six months ago, and an exercise, you would have been laughed out of the room. Um, but, but seriously, uh, I think uh, there's two things here that I want to mention. You know, one is that 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 during the COVID response, um, we started this uh, weekly Friday afternoon webinar series, and uh, you know, internally I call it the Friday afternoon happy hour, which is maybe a little bit optimistic, but the the idea was to to um, try to share on a weekly basis, some of those challenges that, that we were having. And again, you know, roll back to late March, April, when, um, as I talked about earlier, we had this sudden change in the remote workforce. Um, we, had to, we had telemedicine issues that, that, that our service providers were dealing with, and, and, a, and a whole litany of other problems that happened literally overnight. And so um, we set these weekly meetings up to really exchange information with each other on the IT and the info information security challenges that these organizations were having and, and put on a webinar. We had a few CISOs that would kind of sit on the speaker bridge, but we'd have questions coming in from the audience members and we had you know, over 100 people usually on the call and firing all kinds of great questions out or even offering up solutions in the, uh, in the question panel. And... It turned into more of a weekly event as we saw the really the thirst and hunger for that kind of information, and then also I think for the, for really for the I'll say the human interaction, right? It was going back to the whole the whole issue with everyone working remote. Well, people who are used to being in offices now suddenly working remotely, were kind of really you know missing some of that interactive discussion and and and, uh, and banter and, and exchange that we had elsewhere. So. I think that, that really helped out quite a bit. We ran that for about seven weeks or so, and then started even opening it up to uh, guest speakers that we had come in from the financial services sector, comms, and even uh, the electricity sector as well. Um, so that, that's kind of part one. Part two is um, you know, we've had to cancel uh, summits and regional events, and so the staff that have been supporting those events over the past several months we've actually been able to refocus the, the workforce. And uh, as you know, I'm working with you and your team on this as well, on updating our own internal incident response plan. So, so we're taking that time now that we've got um, some extra bandwidth, and we're using that to update that incident response plan. And, and that means like, when an incident does happen, how do we support our members during an incident? If it impacts one or a few members, um, uh, what do we do if it impacts a region and multiple members are impacted? How do we respond if it's a sector broad? wide Incident again, what are we what are we doing there and and it helps us start to prepare uh, Before the incident, so we're not scrambling uh, to respond But we want to be able to have things ready like if, if there's an incident that has to deal with a technology Or some other issue we want to we want to know who the subject matter experts are where are those go-to people that we need to get on the speaker bridge for example so we're kind of prepared we have a list of people that we can go to for example Um, do we have a speaker bridge or I'm sorry do we have a a webinar capability that uh, that we can put a thousand people on for example you know are we prepared to do all those kinds of things and so we're working through that and a whole ton of other things We've been through an internal tabletop to, to run through some of these scenarios, and we're starting to refine that instant response plan, and we're going to continue to refine it. We'll have um, some tabletop exercises going forward now as well, uh, broadening the circle and opening it up to some members to participate in that, so we keep broadening those circles and, and continue to refine that plan. So. So I'd say the, the one good thing uh, coming out of this with, all, with, with a little bit of that excess bandwidth that we've got now is that we're able to kind of refocus the attention and, and, and work on this plan, on this much needed plan.
0: I, I love that. I think you know, good leadership is really being able to make those smart pivots and adjustments so you're, you're not wasting time. You're know, not throwing your hands up in the air and sort of just exasperated by a situation, but being able to figure out how can we use this time and you know, looking at it as an opportunity, right? And be able to do that to enhance resilience, preparedness, Oh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a sweet spot for me. So really, I love that. And I love the happy hour idea. It might not necessarily have necessarily been the happiest hour, but a great way to connect <laughs> and, and yeah. share. I mean, that, that really points to you know, the fact that there's, there's really been a lot of good stories. As hard as this time is, as, as weird as this time is, there's really been a lot of good things that come out of this, I think, to show how remarkable and resilient you know, all of us can be, you know, individually and collectively. So first seeing the idea of coronavirus and cyber threats, I think one of the remarkable things that I saw was a way you know, voluntary groups came together. You see this in, in information security all the time, I think. But, you know, to, to respond to a threat, the you know, groups like the CTI, League, we developed to facilitate information sharing, collaboration, protect medical organizations and public health care facilities and work with organizations like Health, ISEC and others, just on a voluntary basis, just to help because we needed to help. People needed to come together, identify threats, fight the bad guys and try and do good things. You already shared a couple of good stories. Any other good stories or experiences that you've seen coming out of this challenging pandemic?
1: Yeah, I think, um, you know, there's been a few volunteer organizations like that, and I definitely want to share a little bit more about the CTI league specifically, but you know, I've even seen some other volunteer organizations coming together to help with, uh, with, with even um, acquiring and distributing PPE, right? So uh, the whole idea with, um, you know, we've seen plenty of, of organizations even getting scammed where they, 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 they somehow fall victim to these uh, scams where they're responding to um, uh, ads for PPE, just send a 50% deposit, and of course they, they never see their money again, they never see the, the PPE either. And, and so I've seen another volunteer organization set up, um, Project N95 it's called, that uh, was set up to, uh, to identify trusted sources for PPE procurement. And um, they've also set up a number of um, processes and uh, white papers, and, and uh, they're sharing their information as well publicly with organizations who want it. So I'd encourage anyone who's looking for something like that to reach out to them. On uh, the CTI League, I thought, you know, that was really pretty neat to see that in the beginning. Uh, I'd say, you know, again, motivated by... The, the disgust that they that they that the security professionals saw with some of the cyber criminals taking advantage of the time, and looking to uh, profit off of uh, COVID nineteen as well, and uh, that organization grew pretty quickly. Uh, last I checked, I think there were about fifteen hundred volunteers inside that um, organization, and Health ISAC is uh, actively working with them. And I'll tell you, Andy, one one a few of the things that we do with them, that's been really valuable for us is that, um, that those security professionals are sharing indicators of compromise, so IOCs. So we're actively scraping IOCs from that site and using that to share that with our Help ISAC members. Um, they're also doing uh, things like, like sharing scan data. So where they've identified vulnerable infrastructure, they're able to uh, share that information with us and then we use that scan information to, um, to notify members who may be potential victims or may have uh, potential um, uh, vulnerable infrastructure on their networks, and so that's been very valuable. And then finally, again, back to that volunteer network, if we identify um, fake websites or um, websites that are promoting scams and things of that sort, the volunteers are actively donating their time to do takedown services. So you can report those fake websites to the, the folks on the CTI League, for example, and they'll volunteer time to, to go in there and work on takedowns. It's been really wonderful to see that.
0: Yeah, that's a lot of really good stuff. I think another area another I really appreciate is just the effort on helping to disrupt the disinformation, misinformation that's out there as well. There's so many characters just, just doing crazy, ridiculous things just deliberately to cause confusion. And it's, it's really frustrating to see. And there's been a lot of good work. There are other forums as well to just counter that. You know, get get, get the most honest message out that we can, and frustrate those who would try and you know frustrate others. To be honest, so got you know, a little time left, just want to dive into a couple last years. I know when people think of Health ISAC, and you know, with your background, sort of the default is you know it's a cybersecurity organization, it's a cybersecurity pro. But there's other things going on as well beyond the pandemic. Um, you know, there's physical security concerns, there's natural hazards. You guys are based out of Florida, which sees a fair share of. Natural hazard threats. Huh. What is HISAC's role there? And are there any other notable areas of concern across those other domains for you? Yeah, I think. Where um,
1: hmm, do I don't want to go with that now?
0: Yeah, so. A there at the end, you know. <laughs>
1: Yeah, de- you know, hey, definitely in the you know the physical security issues and resilience issues, you know, and with our operations center based in Florida, you know, we're constantly worrying about um, you know the hurricane season and what that means to us. And so, you know, it's one of the outcomes from that incident response plan that I'm looking forward to, and we'll continue to refine that so that you know we may, we even from our own operational standpoint that we maintain uh, readiness uh, there from that center and we continue to, uh, to work and, and as, uh, as we hope to grow uh, internationally and, and uh, I'll be implementing follow the sun type operations at some point in the future, you know, those will um, help with some of the you know, resilience issues being uh, spread out across other geographies. Um, I think you know the other, the other thing that I want to talk about too is uh, I'll talk about in the information age. And I think that, um, that the explosion of digital that's happened in the past, let's say 25 years, as much as that's happened across the board, I think, and, and even as much as it's happened inside healthcare, I still don't think we've seen the impact of what it could potentially mean in healthcare space. And, and I think it's coming. And you know, just look at what, what's happened in telehealth just this year alone in, inside of 2020. I mean, I was looking at a uh, statistic here recently that said that the telehealth billing has increased over 8,000% in the past year, and I, I bet probably most of it was probably just in the first last few months uh, dealing with the pandemic response. But, you know, overall, I see that with more digitization and the delivery of health electronically, doing things like more remote diagnostics. Uh, people that are wearing smartwatches, uh, carrying smartphones around with them, personal health monitoring, remote diagnostics, all of those things are all possible. But with all of those things comes security and privacy challenges going forward. And I think that's, that's going to be you know, the, the real issue for us is identifying those challenges and having to deal with them going forward.
0: Yeah, I, I love that. And that kind of brings back some of the things you were touching on earlier, just, just earlier this month. Uh, the team at Pen Test Partners was looking at, uh, you know, a watch device that could also prescribe med- or remind you to take your medication, how something like that could be compromised and, <laughs> and pretty bad effects, right? If I'm being reminded yeah. to take my medication too often, if I'm suffering from dementia or if I'm a younger child, that could go bad really quickly. And so there's all sorts of you know, really great technology and corresponding risk and concerns that go along with that. And it's, it's awesome that organizations like Health ISAC are there to help think through these things navigate this path and bring the community together to think through how do we mitigate these threats hopefully ahead of time um, but if not you know once we're identified and how we work together to, to to draw down that risk for individuals and organizations so what's next errol i mean there's a lot going on you're doing a lot you talk about some of the good work that's already underway and ways you're taking advantage of the situation with coronavirus anything else on what you're doing to develop health isaac as capabilities and maturity
1: yeah, I think so. I think, uh, you know, hey, I'm always looking for ways that we can improve the services for our HISAC members. Um, always looking at and thinking about other intelligence services that we can be offering. Um, I'll borrow a page from uh, from my former friends at the uh, Financial Services ISAC. I think that there's more that we can do on anti fraud measures and sharing around fraud that's happening in the healthcare space. And uh, we can help our members reduce. Fraud potentially, which will help all of us um, when it comes to healthcare delivery. Uh, I talked earlier about the way that we're delivering intelligence to our members, and I think we'll continue to, to uh, learn and leverage from that experience, um, do it more efficiently, more effectively, and, and even more securely, um, ultimately to maintain the trust that we have with our members. Again, because you know, the whole premise of the ISAC and being able to share information like that, especially sensitive sensitive incident information, is through the establishment of trust that we have in the ISAC and with the members of the ISAC. Um, finally, I'd say the other big thing I want, which is you know, probably right up your alley, <laughs> is improvements on what we're doing around resilience. I mean, you mentioned it a little earlier, and it's definitely an area that I wanna work on. Um, we, we do quite a bit today with our membership, but I wanna do more when it comes to physical security um, and working on enabling technology that we can use to help improve those services. So, you know, so more to follow there.
0: That's, that's really exciting. There's a lot of exciting stuff in that, what you're doing, where you want to go, how you're going about it. It's really awesome. So before we wrap up, just I uh, want to give you the floor for any, any final thoughts or comments or promos about the good work you're doing or anything else you'd like to share. <laughs> yeah,
1: no, hey, I, I really appreciate the partnership that we've got with Gate15. Um, you guys are doing a lot of work behind the scenes, and uh, probably not a, not a whole lot of our members realize uh, some of the services that you guys power for us, uh, but I definitely appreciate the partnership, and, and I'm hoping we can do more in the future as well, and um, I think, like as we said, it, it's going to be a, a strange year as we ride out through the rest of the pandemic response. Um, as you said earlier, I'm trying to take advantage of the, some of the downtime and some other bandwidth uh, resources that we've got available with us now. Um, so that we can do some other things maybe that we didn't necessarily plan for uh, at this point, but uh, take advantage of them now and uh, continue to, 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 uh, to look to make those improvements. But it's been, a, it's been an interesting first year for me in healthcare, and I'm definitely looking forward to continuing to innovate and deliver.
0: Errol, th- thanks so much for that. Thanks for all that you shared today. Thanks for all that you've done, to be honest, and all that you continue to do now with Health ISAC. and you know, it's, it's, it's leaders like you and organizations like Health ISAC that allow us all just sort of try to enjoy our lives, having to think about all those little things that can go wrong and, and just throw us all for such a, a loop, hopefully just a disruption. In some cases, you know, talk about healthcare could be potentially a lot worse than that. So really, sincerely, thank you very much to you. Thanks to anybody that's listened. We discussed a lot about Health ISAC today. There are also a lot of other like efforts across critical infrastructure, be it they don't all have Errol Weiss, but, but they've also got yeah. a lot of great... You know, uh, women and men working hard to enhance security, resilience, preparedness across critical infrastructure and other communities around the country and around the world. So it's, it's great to be able to, to call so many wonderful people, colleagues and friends and a chance to pull up and just reflect on things like we get to today. So, Errol, again, thanks so much for your time and for all that you shared and best of luck to Can You Move Health ISAC forward into the future.
1: Thanks, a lot, Andy. It was great being here with you guys.